This podcast is supported by Zoll LifeVest. Sudden cardiac death is a leading cause of mortality in low EF patients with heart failure or following a heart attack. Zoll is proud to partner with your care team to pursue better outcomes together. Visit LifeVestResults.com to learn more. Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Welcome back, Cardio Nerds. We are in for a serious treat as we do another Cardio Nerds case report episode. We are in LA today for a beautiful day where we are joined with Dr. Omen Amidi, Dr. Marva Shahid, and Dr. Evelyn Song. Team amazing. Why don't you guys go ahead and introduce yourselves? Hi, Cardio Nerds. I'm Evelyn Song, a current house faculty leader for House Itobin. I went to Penn State for medical school and completed my internal medicine residency training at Johns Hopkins. I'm currently a heart failure hospitalist at UCSF and will be staying here for my cardiology fellowship this year. Right now, I'm interested in heart failure and cardiology. And outside of the hospital, you can find me exploring new restaurants with my fiance and playing with my two super cute dogs. Hi guys. Thank you so much for having us on. My name is Omid Amidi and I'm one of the second year cardiology fellows at UCLA. I completed medical school in New York and was at Baylor College of Medicine for internal medicine residency. I'm planning to become a general cardiologist with an interest in imaging and cardio-oncology. When I'm not running around the floors of Ronald Reagan Medical Center, my favorite pastime is to play guitar and check out the latest Persian restaurants in Westwood, judging them against my mom's cooking. Spoiler alert, none of them are close. Oh man, I want to try your mom's cooking. Hi, Cardio Nerds. My name is Marva Shahid. I completed medical school in Washington, D.C., and just like Omid, I was in Texas for our internal medicine residency. I'm now a second-year cardiology fellow at UCLA. My career interest is in general cardiology with a specific interest in biodesign. When I'm not annoying Omid at work, I love playing spike ball at the beach or hiking in the Santa Monica Hills. Oh my gosh, guys, this is such a treat. Not only do we have so much Cardinals Academy talent in this episode with House Faculty Leader Dr. Evelyn Song and former Cardinals Fellow Omid Amidi, we also get to have a Cardinals debut with Marwa Shahid. And before we get too nerdy, just a quick reminder, this podcast is not meant to be used for medical advice. The views expressed here do not necessarily reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. CardioNerds is an independent, fellow-founded platform with the mission to democratize cardiovascular education. To continue creating free and unbiased quality content, we are proud to collaborate with all stakeholders, including trainees, experts, fellowship programs, professional societies, industry, and patient advocacy groups. And the curriculum and content is planned, produced, and reviewed solely by CardioNerds without external bias. And with that, let's get back to being nerdy. So welcome to CardioNerds Recording, everyone. And let's take this moment to find a great place to hang out in Los Angeles. Um, really excited for this because at the time of this recording, it is a blistery 20 degrees or so in Cleveland and snowing. While Marwa told me it is a gorgeous Los Angeles March day with a 80 degrees. So where should we hang out? Secretly hoping for Omid's mom's kitchen, but you guys get to decide. <laughs> So now I know the last time Jay, Ruth, and Hillary took you guys to the beaches of Santa Monica for a bonfire to discuss a case of SCAD, Marva and I want to take you guys eastward through the windy mountain roads to Big Bear Lake. 
We've got hikes, we've got zip lining, we've got amazing views, and more importantly, we have a great case to discuss with you guys. All right, I'm super pumped for this adventure and of course, this amazing case. So let's get started. Marva, can you tell us about the case? Sure, Evelyn. A 69-year-old male with a history of hypertension, hyperlipidemia, and a known history of an autosomal recessive bleeding disorder called Glanzman thrombosthenia, complicated by multiple past admissions for GI bleeds, was admitted for bright red blood per rectum. During this admission, under the care of our fantastic residents and GI colleagues, the patient was found to have a diverticular bleed requiring clipping. While hospitalized, the patient complained of substernal chest tightness radiating to the jaws bilaterally when he walked around the hospital that resolved with rest, saying that this had been bothering him for the past few months. After the team completed their initial workup of the pain, they called us to evaluate the patient as they were concerned for a cardiac etiology. Wow, that's a lot in his one-liner. We have a patient who has a bleeding disorder and also coming in with chest pain that requires further workup. So let's first quickly go over the differentials for chest pain. I always refer to the clinical problem solver schema on chest pain. First, you want to rule out the emergent causes. An easy way to remember this is the mnemonic for two, two. First, we have four cardiac causes, which include our acute coronary syndrome, aortic dissection, tamponade, and Takotsubo cardiomyopathy. Then we have two pulmonary causes, pulmonary embolism and pneumothorax. And lastly, the two esophageal causes, rupture and impaction. So this patient's chest pain is exertional, relieved with rest, and radiates to the jaw, which is pretty characteristic of angina. So it will be very important to rule out acute coronary syndrome. As I mentioned before, this patient's past medical history of Glanzman's thrombophenia and GI bleed adds another layer of complexity to this case. It is important to remember that anemia by itself can also cause some of the symptoms the patient is experiencing. So I think we need to focus a bit more on his disease pathology. I do remember from medical school that Glanzman causes platelet dysfunction and increases bleeding risk. Marva and Omid, can you give us a refresher on hemostasis as well as the pathophysiology behind Glanzman's? Yes, absolutely. So if you guys remember, hemostasis is a two-stage process. After vascular injury, platelets are activated and form a platelet plug through primary hemostasis, followed by secondary hemostasis, which involves making a fibrin thrombus. Injury to the endothelium leads to exposure of the circulating blood to subendothelial elements such as von Willebrand factor. The platelet, which has been activated by signaling molecules such as ADP, undergoes significant morphologic change, which makes it more adherent, and it binds the vascular subendothelium by binding von Willebrand factor with its GP1B receptor. That's the receptor that's missing in Bernard Soulier, if you guys remember from your step one days. After attachment, platelets aggregate through exposure of and conformational changes in the GP2B3A molecule, a member of the integrin family. Platelet stimuli such as ADP and thrombin cause changes in the shape of GP2B3A, which makes it a high-affinity molecule, resulting in platelet-to-platelet -platelet cross-linked adhesion. 
That was a great overview, Marva. So the GP1B receptor is important in the role of the vascular subendothelium binding of one Villebrand factor with the platelet. And the GP2B3A molecule is important in terms of aggregation of the platelets together. Now that we've had that overview, let's talk about Glanzmann's thrombostenia. The disorder is an autosomal recessive bleeding disorder characterized by a defect in the GP2B3A receptor. It was initially described by Edward Glanzman in a paper published in 1918 describing patients with hemorrhagic symptoms and quote-unquote weak platelets. In the 1970s, scientists were able to identify the specific integrin protein which leads to its manifestations. Classically, Glanzmann's thrombostenia is diagnosed through light transmission aggregometry. If you're not familiar with that, let me do a quick description of the method. Imagine you were looking at a sheet of unactivated platelets under a microscope. Because the platelets are not activated, they are separated out and cover a lot of surface area, blocking the light coming from the microscope from getting to your eye. When you introduce platelet-stimulating factors, the platelets should begin to clump together, allowing more light to come through, which is picked up by your eye, aka the detector. In patients with defects in the GP2B3A receptor, the stimulating factors ADP, epinephrine, and collagen cannot activate platelets. Hence, the amount of light detected through aggregometry remains the same. Clinically, patients with Glanzmann's thrombostenia are prone to bleeding, which is usually mostly mucocutaneous. However, patients can have severe bleeding with the disorder, with some patients requiring hematopoietic stem cell transplant in the treatment of the disorder. The disease affects 1 in 1 million, but in some areas, there may be a higher prevalence, such as in Pakistan and providences in Canada. In roughly 85% of patients with Glanzmann, the disease is diagnosed by 14 years of age. I just want to point out that there is one other scenario where one could have acquired GP2V3A defect, and that is in autoimmune diseases and malignancies where autoantibodies proliferate against the receptor, with isolated case reports describing it in patients with multiple myeloma, lupus, or in patients with multiple platelet transfusions in their history. Wow, that was a great review and definitely brought me back to the good old days of medical school. So let me quickly recap to make sure I understood everything. First, hemostasis is a two-step process. You start with a platelet plug, which is formed after endothelial injury. Next, you have the coagulation cascade, which results in cleavage of fibrinogen into fibrin, forming the final fibrin clot. And GP2B3A is a receptor on the surface of platelets where fibrinogen and von Willebrand factors bind to. So any defects in this receptor will prevent hemostasis and lead to increased risk of bleeding. Did I get that right? That's right. Great. This will definitely be very helpful as we continue to learn more about this patient. Marva, can you tell us more about him? Sure thing, Evelyn. The patient has had several issues with GI bleeding in the past, including bleeding from internal and external hemorrhoids, gastric ulcers due to H. pylori infection, and even diverticular bleeds requiring clips. His past surgical history includes stone removal for nephrolithiasis and wisdom teeth removal. Both of these surgeries were complicated by significant bleeding, necessitating transfusion support, desmopressin, and aminocaprionic acid. 
Upon talking to the patient more, he noted that over the past several months, he's had decreased exercise tolerance. He used to be able to walk for an hour a few months ago, and now his exercise capacity has decreased to walking for only 20 minutes. Sporadically, he also has noted chest pressure, worse with heavy activity, and resolved with sublingual nitroglycerin. He also noted rare episodes of a sharp pushing pain in the left chest that resolved with eating. His home medications include chlorothalidone, amlodipine, isosorbide mononitrate, rosuvastatin, and sublingual nitro, which he took once every few months. His father has a history of hypertension and a prior MI, but there's no family history of bleeding disorders. He denies any allergies. Now on to our exam. He was hemodynamically stable. His vitals included a blood pressure of 155 over 80, heart rate of 66, and respiratory rate of 12. He was afebrile and saturating 95% on room air. On physical exam, he appeared to be in no acute distress. His heart had a regular rate and rhythm with normal S1 and S2 sound. His JVP was not elevated. His lungs were cleared to auscultation bilaterally and his abdomen was soft. He did have some bruising noted on his arms. All right, let's take a pause here and talk about what we know so far regarding the patient's history and exam. His history of multiple GI bleeds and postoperative bleeding would definitely be consistent with what Ovid told us earlier about gland spins. Now, taking into account the additional history we learned and his presentation of chest pain, he definitely had several risk factors for coronary artery disease, including age, hyperlipidemia, hypertension, and family history of MI. Reassuringly, his vitals are stable and his exam does not suggest cardiogenic shock or pulmonary edema. Another thing to consider is given his history of gastric ulcer, esophageal ruptures or gastric perforations are also possible, but less likely here given that his abdominal exam is reassuring and x-ray so far seems normal. Also, epidemiologically, his chest pain, his risk factors make coronary artery disease more likely. So next, I would definitely be interested in finding out more about his cardiac markers, EKG, and echo. Martha, what did you guys do next? I know you're itching to find out, Evelyn. Of course, given his symptoms, we obtained an EKG and troponin. His EKG showed normal sinus rhythm without evidence of ST changes, T-wave inversions, or Q-waves. There was no evidence of LVH. The patient's hemoglobin was 12 at the time of the symptoms, thus we thought his symptoms were less likely due to anemia. His prior hemoglobin A1c was normal. Two serum troponin I levels were collected six hours apart and were normal. His transthoracic echo showed a normal LV size, mild concentric LVH, normal systolic function, and normal diastolic function. His LVEF was approximately 65 to 70 percent. He had normal right ventricular size, systolic function, and normal PASP. So at this point, based on the patient's description of symptoms and time frame of symptoms, I would say that his diagnosis is stable angina in the setting of a normal ejection fraction. In the past, he had not had any sort of functional stress testing to see what his pretest probability for coronary artery disease would be. So at this point, we decided to conduct a exercise stress echocardiogram and evaluate the patient with both exercise and with imaging. 
I'm glad we decided to do that because the exercise stress echo showed stress-induced segmental wall motion abnormalities in the inferior septum, mid and apical anterior septum, and mid-inferior wall after seven minutes of exercise, with noted greater than one millimeter ST depressions in the inferior lateral region during the exercise portion. Given these findings, what do you think you would do next, Evelyn? Yeah, this is very interesting case. Even though the resting echo was relatively unremarkable, given our high pretest probability, the stress echo was positive. And with the wall motion abnormality and the inferior septum, mid and apical anterior septum and mid inferior wall, this is suggestive of a PDA or distal LAD territory stenosis. Given his worsening functional status, I think that we definitely need to evaluate his coronary anatomy in some way. To do this, I know we have an option of a coronary angiogram versus a coronary CTA. For this patient, the management is tricky because we need to take into consideration his medical history of glancements, which puts him at an increased risk for bleeding already. In this specific scenario, I might start with a non-invasive imaging study such as coronary CTA. So Evelyn, before we go to this coronary CTA, I heard you say that this might be a PDA or an LAD lesion. Which one do you want to put your money on? So given the mid-anterior wall is involved, I would go with a mid-LAD wraparound lesion. Evelyn, if I was a betting person, I'd bet that you are correct. So Omid, what did we find? Also, I'd love to hear a little bit of the decision-making between getting a CCTA versus invasive coronary angiography. That's an excellent thought process. I just want to say, Evelyn, we agreed with you, and I want to delve more into the decision-making a bit more in terms of this patient. Number one, in the setting of a patient with stable angina with a normal resting EF, there are two factors that are extremely important to remember. One is that these patients require further risk stratification by their anatomy. We need to identify those who have high risk stenosis in the left main coronary artery as these patients have an indication for bypass for improved survival. Second is that we have fantastic medical therapy today that can really help patients and their angina. From beta blockers to calcium channel blockers to nitrates, one of the first steps in treating stable angina should be to safely titrate patients onto these medications. And it's important to identify those whose pain is refractory to medical therapy. Now, for our patients, given this patient's positive stress echocardiogram, we were concerned for a possible mid-LAD lesion. And we thought that he did have an indication for a coronary angiogram. However, his history of glancements and also his current admission for GI bleed was a big factor to consider. Like Marva presented in his one-liner, he had had multiple admissions previously requiring blood products. So our thought process was to initially begin with a coronary CT to evaluate him for high-risk disease in the left main. The recently published discharge trial sheds a light on the coronary CT versus coronary angiogram debate in patients with stable chest pain. Not to review the entire trial, hashtag CardsJC, but in summary, the trial showed that in patients with intermediate pretest probability for CAD and stable chest pain, a coronary CT may be a viable initial option for assessing the coronary anatomy compared to a coronary angiogram. The trial, which included 3,561 patients, showed similar rates of major adverse cardiac events between the two groups over a period of 3.5 years. I would like to point out that our patient, his history of glansman's 
and his positive stress echo do not perfectly match the population of the discharge trial. However, at the end of the day, it's important to consider all factors in a patient's history and have an individualized dialogue with each patient with shared decision-making in terms of the risk and benefits of these tests. Omid, I just want to say that this decision to get a CCTA makes perfect sense, especially within the context of this patient's bleeding diathesis. So you, one, use a valuable test to delineate the coronary anatomy, which is your chief goal here, and avoid proceduralizing him at the same time. And of course, you always reserve the right to take him for a coronary angiography should the CCTA be non-diagnostic. Makes a lot of sense. Yeah, exactly agree with Ahmed. This is a difficult patient to manage, especially given his current admission for GI bleed. And I'm interested to find out what happened next. So Marva, what did you guys end up doing? While the patient was originally on some anti-anginal meds, his regimen was not optimized. We initially up-titrated his amlodipine from 5 to 10 milligrams and his isosorbide mononitrate from 30 to 90 milligrams. The coronary CT revealed a focal plaque in the proximal mid-LAD with severe stenosis. The patient continued to have progressive angina, increasing in both frequency and intensity despite optimization with anti-anginal medical therapy. Given his high-risk coronary CT findings and refractive anginal symptoms, the patient underwent a transradial coronary angiogram to definitively assess his coronary anatomy. Angiography showed severe one-vessel CAD in the proximal LAD with 95% stenosis involving the bifurcation of the first diagonal branch and without angiographic evidence of dissection. After a multidisciplinary discussion with our hematology and CT surgery colleagues, we recommended that the patient pursue percutaneous coronary intervention over a robotic cabbage. Wow, I bet that was an interesting and complex conversation to be a part of, Marva. Can you tell us more about the thought process behind choosing PCI over cabbage? Yes, definitely. It was great to be a part of that discussion. So first off, we delved into the primary literature. During our search, we found only three published case reports of patients with glansmans who had undergone bypass surgery. These patients required significant blood product administration during the surgery, and two of the three patients had postoperative bleeding complications. Second, although minimally invasive, robotic Lima to LAD had seemingly prohibited upfront perioperative bleeding risk in addition to the need for at least short-term single antiplatelet therapy after surgery. On the PCI side, we found no reported cases of PCI in a patient with glansmans. The use of antiplatelets in the setting of glansmans is really not well studied. Additionally, it was unclear whether the mechanism of glansmans would provide sufficient antiplatelet activity and if the use of DAPT would increase our patient's bleeding risk and by how much. Another fact that we had to keep in mind was the patient's prior history of GI bleed. Given his history, he had previously required multiple platelet transfusion. If he were to have required platelet transfusions after PCI, we have to remember that the donor platelet have functional GP2B3A protein, which can cause platelet aggregation and potential stent thrombosis if no DAPT was on board. That's right. Thus, after evaluating the options and weighing the risks and benefits with the patient, we opted for PCI. We chose a strategy of short-term DAPT with aspirin and Plavix for one month, followed by Plavix alone for at least two months afterwards, with plans to continue monotherapy indefinitely unless significant bleeding occurred. 
Yeah, I believe that our strategy for DAPT in this patient was chosen prior to the release of the 2021 coronary revascularization guidelines, but it's in line with the 2A and 2B indications that the guidelines have for discontinuation of aspirin after one month and to continue the P2Y12 agent for at least two months in patients with stable ischemic heart disease who undergo PCI with drug-eluting stents whom are at high risk for bleeding. That's right. Following loading with DAPT, the patient underwent successful intravascular ultrasound-guided LED diagonal bifurcation PCI with a double-kissing crush technique with placement of two drug-eluting stents, one in the LED and one in the diagonal artery. So guys, I'm looking at the final results of this coronary intervention, and I can't help but feel like I want to congratulate everyone for the incredible angiographic result in the face of a very complex situation. All right, talk about data-free zone. There are several decision-making points here that are in a data-free zone, right? One is the approach to revascularization in a patient with Glanzmann thrombosthenia. The second is the approach to short duration of DAPT in a patient with bifurcation stenting, right? I can only imagine that the proportion of patients who had a DK crush bifurcation stenting technique was probably quite underrepresented. And then also the decision to do DK crush bifurcation stenting of a LED diag lesion, because a lot of the data there comes from left main bifurcation. And as a total cath nerd, I can't help but sort of take myself in the moment of doing that intervention and thinking through all of the nuances that go into that decision making. The DK crush technique is a nuanced, time-intensive, and complex procedure that you get into because you really want the best optimal result for the patient that is going to decrease as much as possible the rate of target lesion revascularization downstream, decrease MACE rate down the road. The result that they were able to achieve is quite impressive, and I'm sure will serve the patient well. Those are amazing thoughts, and I could definitely see your calf nerd mind gears turning as you would imagine yourself right there as the operator and deciding your approach to take care of this particular patient. And my reflections on this case is, first of all, you see this beautiful cascade of testing that you did that was totally appropriate for this patient. And you also see this really important clinical correlation to the imaging and the way the patient felt. You listened to your patient and you basically started off with the testing that, you know, we have this echo that's normal, things are checking off the list. But again, we took the patient into context and we listened to them and then we did a provocative stress test, which brought out the anatomy that we saw was ischemic with exercise. And then that perfectly correlated as Ahmed and Evelyn's discussion about where the lesion might likely be was spot on. And they predicted a large wraparound LED lesion that would serve the anterior wall as well as apex and then continue around and take on some of the inferior wall as well. And that was indeed found on the CT. And then another perfect, beautiful correlate between the CT and the cath findings. It just shows you that when these studies are done appropriately and they're done for the right reasons, they can give you so much much information and allow for planning for the patient. In this case, it was two kinds of planning. One is procedural planning, as Ahmed was talking about. And the other one is planning so that you do the right thing for your patient, particularly in this patient who has a bleeding diaphysis issue. You want to basically do the right thing for this patient at the right time. The testing allowed for the pinpointing of the lesion, the procedural planning, but as well as the pinpointing the right time to intervene for this patient. I think that that made all the difference. And again, we should just remind ourselves that we don't just treat lesions, we treat patients. And that's very important to understand. And we also don't make assumptions about the anatomy. We find out and sometimes it requires some more testing to get the data to provide the correct reassurance and then the correct opportunity to utilize medical therapy as was done really nicely in this patient. So I agree with Ahmed and really happy that this patient was in your care and your hands and was definitely served well by the way that you approached this patient. We are obviously very interested in hearing what happened next. 
So during the outpatient follow-up for the patient, he continued to remain symptom-free and without any bleeding episodes at three months, which was a really great outcome for the patient. And I'm just so grateful to be a part of this interdisciplinary discussion with hematology and CT surgery, interventional cardiology, and general cardiology. It was a great case. Marwan, thank you for giving us the clinical course there, and congratulations on a terrific outcome for this complex patient with a lot of key decision-making. We covered a lot of ground. Do you guys have any takeaways for us? I think that one of the main takeaways that I had from this case, besides remembering what Glanzman's thrombastenia is, the importance of, like Dan was mentioning, having a cascade of testing to investigate stable angina. Sometimes what happens is patients may be on some medical therapy. However, it's important to look at their anatomy because based on what we know, some patients may actually require intervention, be it with bypass or at times PCI to control symptoms. The other thing that I learned from this case is that patients with glansmans can have a difference in their phenotype. So some may have higher risk of bleeding, and we don't know whether the lack of the GP2V3A receptors function, if that will protect them when they get a stent. So we were very happy to publish this case that is showing evidence that in these patients, PCI may be a viable option. Wow, these are fantastic pearls and takeaways. And Marva, Evelyn, Omid, you guys did such an outstanding job presenting this very challenging case as we reflected a little bit earlier. You know, I was walking literally the beaches of Santa Monica a week ago, and I knew I had to catch my flight a little bit later. And Ahmed and I were actually going through the calendar and looking to see what's going to be on the plate for this next week and weekend for Cardi Nerds. And I saw that we'd be right back in Santa Monica. So I knew that I could leave in peace. So thank you so much for bringing me back and for sharing this really important case that really highlighted the complexities that we cardiologists deal with almost on a daily basis. So thank you so much for that. This was an absolutely fantastic, phenomenal, and tremendous discussion. Yeah, thanks, Dan and Ahmed. I think one of the things I wanted to plug is the Cardio Nerds Academy, working with Evelyn and Dinu, and just over the past year, creating content for Twitter and creating the Cards JC. That has been a great experience. And I'm really happy that the program is in its second year. Oh, me, thank you so much for saying that. And the Cardio Nerds Academy is certainly a crown jewel within the whole of Cardio Nerds. And the work that we all do together is personally very inspiring and motivating. And thank you for being a part of that community. But don't run too far. We're not done with you yet. All right, let's continue our hike and go to the next zip lining course. And now for the ECPR portion of the case report, I'd like to introduce Dr. Rushi Puri one of our phenomenal interventional cardiologists at UCLA. He's one of our favorite faculty members to be with in the cath lab. Dr. Parikh is also a researcher and is involved in multiple clinical trials. His research interests include invasive imaging modalities in the heart transplant population. Take it away, Dr. Parikh. Thank you for the introduction, Omid, and thank you to the Cardio Nerds for giving our team at UCLA the opportunity to showcase this fascinating multidisciplinary case. Marwan Omid adeptly highlighted the key and nuanced factors in this complex decision-making case, but I will add a few salient discussion points from the perspective of an interventional cardiologist. First, I want to underscore the importance of a heart team approach here, particularly in these challenging scenarios where the risk-benefit balance is not straightforward. In this case, the decision for PCI was ultimately made after a collaborative discussion between myself, the patient's primary cardiologist, and cardiac surgery and hematology colleagues, and of course with buy-in from the patient himself. This heart team approach allowed each potential treatment strategy to be thoroughly vetted, 
and also helped guide our post-PCI antiplatelet management. Second, as we described in the manuscript, there are no previously published case reports of PCI in patients with Glanzman thrombosthenia. The unique bleeding profile here, effectively the patient is on a glycoprotein 2B3A drip, put this patient at exquisitely high bleeding risk. Prior to performing the PCI, I shared this case in real time via email with dozens of leading interventional cardiologists around the country. As you can imagine, opinions regarding stent type, antiplatelet therapy type, none versus single versus dual, antiplatelet therapy length, and PCI strategy varied quite a bit with no consensus whatsoever. Dr. Mark Kern actually coined the phrase, a zebra in polka dots, which I thought was fitting. In situations like this, the aforementioned collaboration with hematology was extremely helpful. Given that the diagonal branch is a large branching vessel covering a large territory with mild to moderate disease and would likely incur plaque shift and severe pinching with balloon angioplasty, stenting, and post-dilation of the LED, we opted for an upfront two-stent technique. Although bifurcation stenting and overlapping metal at the neocarina increases the risk of stent-related adverse events, given the large vessel sizes of the LED and diagonal and the fact that the patient had glansman thrombosthenia, we felt this risk was attenuated. Third, I want to briefly touch on our choice of stent type and antiplatelet therapy in this case. Although bare metal stents are still used today, their use has dramatically decreased, and based on the last decade or so of randomized control data, including trials such as Leaders Free and Zeus, I personally do not believe they have a role in contemporary PCI. Indeed, the more recent Onyx One trial did not even have a bare metal stent platform as a comparator for this reason. Furthermore, there have been a multitude of recent trials, including MasterDapt and StopDapt 2, that have consistently shown the negative impact of bleeding on outcomes and the safety of shorter-term DAPT in various clinical scenarios, and the guidelines are slowly changing to reflect this. It should also be noted that nearly every major drug diluting stent platform now has an indication for a short or one-month DAPT. With respect to antiplatelet type and duration, the mechanism of Glanzman thrombosthenia prevents platelet aggregation, the last step in platelet-related thrombosis while oral antiplatelet therapy inhibits platelet activation through alternative mechanisms. Thus, we felt that short-term one-month DAPT would decrease the risk of platelet activation at the site of the stents, while only incrementally increasing the patient's overall bleeding risk. Finally, in all patients, but in particular one with Glanzman thrombosthenia, the goal was to have an optimized PCI to minimize the risk of needing to come back in the future due to long-term restenosis. Thus, as with all my PCIs, this was an image-optimized case in this particular case with IVIS. The choice of a two-stent strategy for most operators is based on comfort and expertise. There are several two-stent strategies and techniques with nuanced differences, but the key, in my opinion, is to master one and not skip steps. In this case, we use the double-kissing crush or DK crush technique, which arguably has the most favorable randomized data supporting its use. Without going into the weeds too much, this technique involves stenting the side branch first, crushing the stent with a balloon from the main vessel, followed by the first kissing balloon inflation, which is simultaneous balloon inflation in both the main and side branch vessel, and then ending with stenting of the main branch followed with a second kissing balloon inflation, and finally, what we call proximal optimization of the main vessel stent. I hope you all enjoyed these learning points from Omid, Marwa, and the rest of the team. Thank you very much again, Amit, Dan, Evelyn, and the rest of the Cardinals crew for inviting our team at UCLA to participate in this high-yield platform. I'm looking forward to seeing all of you and some of the listeners as applicants on your interview trail here at UCLA. Thank you very much. That's awesome. Okay, I've um, literally never been ziplining here. <laughs> really? Okay. We're on the zipline right now, Marla. <laughs> it can be on the record. I went to Big Bear with Omid as like a class like um, bonding thing last year. He drove on these like windy mountain sides where it was like 
really, really windy. And the whole time it was like, oh God, oh God, we're going to die. <laughs> <laughs> like, I'm getting PTSD. <laughs> I, I would trust it. my life in Omid's hands <laughs> any day.